Welcome to Making Bank, the show for Bankless DAO by Bankless DAO, where each week we highlight a project and a personality from inside the Bankless DAO. We want to showcase the work that we do and the people who do it. This is our story as we journey to become more bankless. If you want to learn more about what it is that we do, then just keep listening. We hope you enjoy today's episode of Making Bank. Hi, I'm Drost, and welcome to another episode of Making Bank. Today's guest is none other than Above Average Joe, a bankless DAO OG who's been at the center of building community since its earliest days. He last appeared on Making Bank in August of 2022, when Miss Purple of Bankless Africa guest hosted. If you want to get a lot more background on Joe's story, please check out that conversation from episode 24. Now let's jump right into my conversation with Above Average Joe. Well, hey, Joe, welcome back to Making Bank. It is good to be here. I love this show, and I'm always happy to be a guest on it. Well, it's wonderful to have you as a guest, and this is the first time that I've actually had a chance to chat with you in an interview context, so this is fun for me. The last time you were on the show, you had a wonderful conversation with Miss Purple, as I'd mentioned, and you started your journey back in 2013 when you first got introduced to Bitcoin, and then you first got introduced to David Hoffman through his earlier podcast of POV Crypto in, I think, 2017, 2018 timeframe. And then that led right into Bankless. And then, of course, the launch of Bankless DAO in 2021. And so your journey is now a decade of having gotten involved with crypto on some level. So, yeah, what are you reflecting on these days? Oh, man, the growth journey has been just so powerful. Um, I would say that these days my focus is mostly on compensation and incentive alignment at the organizational level. And part of that's just what I've been doing an awful lot of in my DAO service. So these days it's what I look at the most, and it's always near and dear to my heart because I am a big fan of equitability in dealing with interpersonal systems. It's something that, you know, the underdogs are easy to root for. One of the things that's been a through line uh, in listening to you, actually, since the genesis of Bankless DAO, and then also going back and reviewing some of the prior conversations on this show, you've been remarkably consistent. And that is something that that one doesn't often get. And you had said in this prior conversation that you were looking for a way to go full-time crypto and that you were really looking at ways to scale community and scale that social side. The DAO now is just about two years old, as a matter of fact. And your daughter was born two weeks after the launch of Bankless DAO. And so while Bankless DAO is cutting its teeth, so is your daughter. And I thought that was a really interesting parallel analogy. I know people have commented in the past and that sometimes you bring a bit of a dad sensibility, I think, to conversations. And, and as you mentioned before, um, trying to facilitate that community aspect of things. Did you want to maybe speak to that a little bit? Yeah, there are a ton of parallels. And one of the reasons why it kind of gives that dad vibe in the DAO is because I treat the DAO a lot like a kid. 
Not in the sense that I'm overbearing and patronizing over what they do, but in the sense that I would do anything to see you succeed, and I will pour my life out to help you get the best shot at success you possibly can. And when you're doing that to an organization, and by proxy from that to the individuals who are in that organization, that authenticity is felt. You had talked about when people first came in, and I, I was almost visualizing you with a big sorting hat at the at a front table. One of the things that had been mentioned there was, you know, being able to take this energy of people coming in and being able to gather them somehow, process all that energy, and then propagate it out elsewhere. So, Joe, you mentioned before about some parallels between and across communities that you've either worked in in the past or are working in now. Maybe you can speak to that a bit. Yeah. So the parallels that I have encountered tend to be pretty consistent because we are in an environment of largely flat organizations in the DAO structure. Most of these systems in their inception have been created in a way that a hierarchy isn't part of the design. And this has left a difficulty when it comes to assigning responsibility and taking ownership of it. When everybody in the organization feels like the point of authority, it's very difficult to take initiative because you don't always feel empowered. And this is a point where the culture of the organization is explicitly pointed toward the cultivation of that empowerment. So if an individual wants to do something in service of the organization, the filter of the organizational values and the target of the organizational mission can calibrate the individual's relationship to the organization as a whole and give them enough direction that they can act with confidence that they are in alignment with the organization's needs. And when the individual serves the needs of the organization and creates enough value that it can sustain their existence and return a little bit of surplus to the system so that it may propagate, you create a self-referential system that is symbiotic in nature. The social system takes care of the individual and the individual takes care of the social system. And there are a lot of parallels in nature that we can look to that are very similar in that type of symbiosis. One of the reasons why I think I have been successful in my endeavors over here at Bankless Dow is I approach it with permaculture as one of my main approaches to playing this game. And that's because permaculture by its very nature is the propagation of an infinite game system. The core ethos that I find in our social game is very close to what permaculture's stated principles are. It's most commonly referred to as earth care, people care, and return of the surplus, which are also very much 
applicable in a social system because the earth care is the environment in which our social organism resides. For DAOs, that is the Ethereum ecosystem. We rely on that portion of the existence of our digital white space to propagate where we live. And so we need to make sure we're taking care of that. Then we have the people care, which is the individual contributor level. If the earth care is the ecosystem, then the people care is taking care of the cells within our own body. It is the recognition that unless we nourish those elements, then we are not going to have the energy it requires to propagate the continuation of our organism. And then return of surplus is that concept that whatever we produce to give back to that ecosystem that helps sustain us and to those who are the most granular elements of our contribution, that there is also an element of perpetuating the game itself. That is the spawning of new projects, that is new social services within our DAO. It is the recognition that when we generate more value than we pull out of the system, we can reinforce the fertility of the system itself and in turn boost the resilience and robustness of our organism as a whole. And doing so will raise the level of engagement at our organizational level. You spoke to something that I think is a challenge in all DAOs, and that is the front door. It is welcoming people in a way that that is meaningful and gets them the essence of the organization as quickly as possible without overwhelming when people come in, they need to get a sense of what the organization is about. And then in terms of having a mentor that can kind of walk with you on your journey, at least your initial visit to these various guilds and groups that you might be interested in. And I'd seen in some other places, I was perusing some other DAOs and so on. One thing I've heard and seen is that people don't like just being assigned to somebody to onboard them. You know, it's just like anything else. So you go to a new city or a new school or a new job, a new workplace. You meet meet people at lunch and you maybe vibe with somebody and, hey, maybe we can chat later. Maybe we have a coffee tomorrow morning. And those are the people that kind of show you the ropes in the organization. And trying to, to develop that in this virtual space and in what's essentially a flat organization when you can go and talk to anybody, uh, create any project you want without asking permission, uh, I think that's a new concept for a lot of people, and I would argue a little bit too unstructured. I think welcoming people in and helping them understand what the mission of the organization is, and frankly, that can evolve and morph over time. And recently, there's been some discussion about code of conduct, and should there be a code of conduct? And, and if someone violates that code of conduct, what are the consequences? I mean, we are becoming a more mature organization. I wouldn't say we are mature. I think what you're getting at there is very close to what we are seeing in our emergent coordination game. There are limits that come with our ability to socially scale. And part of the reason why we didn't see 
the manifestation of things like a code of conduct in our early days was we were small enough as an organization that there wasn't really a need to formalize our social contract with one another. We had come together in a small enough group that it was well understood without being explicit. But as our organization grows, there are a much greater pool of people that are participating. And those participants, when you get to larger levels, can have different perspectives of what it means to be in the organization. And that leads to ambiguity, which is one of those things that dilutes the values and the mission of the organization and erode that ability to take initiative on the individual level to serve the organism. So by codifying things like our social interactions, the things that are advisable versus opposed, those defining points allow us to recoalesce around what it is that we agree upon. And as we get to the basics of those scaling problems, we are able to support the levels of participation that we experience here. But as our organization grows, the level of attention that's paid in each area of nuance also grows. And that's going to result in things like our constitution, which are eventually and ever expanding to reflect the areas where that clarity is needed in our social contract. And that's not to say that we are using force to impose this on our membership, because the entire point of a DAO is voluntarist. It's the communication of those values so that those who would opt into that social system know that they are in a group with those who are well aligned. Right, and know that, that you'll be supported um, when you do pursue something that, that aligns with the organization and, and you know the, the processes to do things and you know who you can pull in when you need help. That kind of segues into another topic, which is helping one another. And I think this speaks to broader community, but it also speaks to to individualism versus collective action. I mean, there's so much to that you could speak to and unpack there. But I think when you bring a lot of different disciplines together, and I think this is one of the things that's really cool about Bankless DAO and DAO space in general, is you can bring together such a primordial soup, if you will, of areas of expertise, cultural backgrounds, institutional knowledge, historical knowledge, gender stuff. I mean, all of it. We have all of it here. And we've managed to have, I think, some pretty damn productive conversations and and some of them have been pretty uncomfortable. The point is this that as you had talked about and we talk about all the time, is nation, human coordination is we're never necessarily going to win at this game of human coordination. All we can do is try and get better at it. It's a combination of tech and it's a combination of being human. There's so much creativity in the world and eight billion people on the planet, and I think a lot of folks have not had opportunity. There's a chance here to open those opportunities to more people and break open those barriers. And and um, I don't know how to do it. I mean, we even see with our token allocation, people accumulate tokens over time and suddenly you, you amass power 
just through a weighted token vote, even if all you were doing is working heads down. Suddenly you have all these tokens and your vote means something more than it does other people. And so I think we need to solve for some of those kinds of problems. And you've been riffing on and working on, on some of these challenges. Absolutely. And there's definitely an overlapping of several different interests when it comes to things like token holding and what that means in the late game for accumulation and value distribution. I do think that what you alluded to a little earlier was something that I'd like to sort of expand upon there. And that is the concept of this game that we're playing not necessarily being winnable. And that is a hallmark of game theory in that there are two different types of games. There are finite and infinite games. And there's a TED talk I listened to not too long ago that was by Simon Sinek, I think is how you say his name. And he went into his entire talk about game theory and what it teaches about war. But I find that the analogy that he brought is perhaps in his talk applied to war, but in the social context of what we are looking at as an organization is also very salient because an infinite game is meant to be propagated, not one. And so the enemy for us is not necessarily a capture. It is coordination failure because as long as the game keeps going our society has a chance to evolve adapt and grow but coordination failure will kill us and so our entire game is not that and that was something that he drove a strong point home to and i found it very interesting that the why, the what, the how of the different approaches of that game theory wound up creating almost direct parallels to the approaches of our organization in the mission, the vision, and the values. We find that the vision is the utopic endgame. That is the coordination success scenario, which in an infinite game is ongoing. So that is always going to be a vision that morphs because the goalposts move. And then there are the values, which are the rules of the game. If you do something that breaks the values, it's an illegal move. Even if it's something that might achieve a mission objective, it's outside of the alignment of what we do as an organization. And so those are the limitations on how we play the game. And then the mission itself is our objective that brings us one step closer to achieving that utopic sort of vision. It's the milestones along the way, the KPIs, the areas where we can finitely create and accrue value in such a way that the holistic organism benefits and continues to propagate, and thus we continue to play the game. The opportunities are so open and the use cases for the ways you can use this technology. You know, like sometimes when you've got a hammer, everything's a nail. 
And the idea with DAOs is not that it's going to, that we're trying to turn everything into automated systems without any human intervention. I think that's a recipe for disaster as well. But allowing humans to coordinate better in a way that that you can trust the result. You look at all the ways that we make decisions as humans, those seven deadly sins, manifested and writ large and iterated very, very quickly. That's the thing. As we start to use these technical systems and you're incorporating human frailty and human behavior into it and, and modeling it very quickly. For sure. And I think that when dealing with systems like this, understanding that the things that are the restrictions or the bugs within the system are the highlighters for where the solutions are can turn those things that would have worked against us into the catalysts for our ability to scale up. Because trust as a mechanism of social cohesion is the marker of where our scaling limits are. The things that we do on a social level that create a wider area of shared trust are what allow us to grow up further as an organization. And that's why things like bylaws tend to be so effective, because they allow us to codify the social agreement that we are working under, and through that we are able to assign it a greater degree of trust. But all of that is a move and not necessarily part of the strategy of a game. When you're looking at the strategies of the game, the systemic approach is one that is going to be far more illuminatory because it will tell you when something is right for application or when it isn't. It is the propagation and the continuation that is the objective, not necessarily winning. And so the core principles and then the aspects that are optimized for inside of permaculture systems lead to a lens that tell me a little bit more about how things should interact on a social level rather than an individual approach. And that means that considerations of other areas of our social system come into every decision in a way that doesn't necessarily happen if they are an island on their own. And that sort of holistic approach is one that leads to more permanent solutions. Do you think that the experimentation that's happening around reputation and can reputation tokens in combination with maybe time lock tokens we talk about, the separation of an equity building side of a a product or building something inside the organization and if that product or project takes off gets commercialized you know product market fit where does that flow back to we need to figure out those mechanisms so it flows back to the people that ideated on it worked on it blood sweat and tears and they're hanging on and counting on this taking off and it's a form of 
I don't want to say gambling, but you're betting on yourself. But if you're not able to bet on yourself in a way that the thing that you build flows back, that's always been the problem. I'm just trying to figure out because there's the equity side with the tokens, then trying to figure out how that relates to voting and then having your work be represented and flow back to you so that it's portable. You know, we talk about portable reputation, portable benefits. What about that? <laughs> I think you hit on some really strong points there. When thinking about reputation systems, yes, they are absolutely useful. They allow us to begin measurements of things that are very difficult to measure. And those measurements themselves are critical for us to be able to equitably distribute value. Um, this is one area where blockchain is a great application because it allows us to document all of the areas of the value add along the chain. And when we have all of those elements and we are able to quantize them in some way, then that creates an ability to evaluate subjective worth. And there are absolutely a lot of problems in any valuation structure we come up with. This is one of the scaling limits we are up against right now. But when we are able to put something into that place, we can then begin to refine from that system based off of the inefficiencies we see. And the ability to compare those things one against another is very much an apples and oranges kind of comparison because how do you compare a developer's code against an artist's painting? It's not anywhere near identical. And yet, right? They're both, and they're both works of art. Exactly, and <laughs> of human creativity. Those things do have value, but if you have all of them built together into one product, separating whose equitable value distribution is whose is a big challenge. And one of the things that helps assist in moderating this that we see paralleled in traditional finance an awful lot is qualifications, and that is because certain things take more effort to be able to perform in the first place. And that extra learning required is a proxy for the difficulty of creating that value. Because if you're a doctor and it takes you 10 years to figure out how to perform a life-saving surgery, even if that surgery takes 10 minutes, that background knowledge that was required and the skill of that hand to make sure that the achieved result is what was desired indicates a huge amount of value that is wrapped into that very concentrated space. So there is a certain level of value density that is associated with the difficulty of a task. And then the necessity of that task being performed also creates a sort of thermodynamic relationship between it, where the individual who is doing that life-saving surgery is performing something that is objectively way more valuable than perhaps another surgery who is uh, just doing a nose job. Like, that may be valuable to that individual that is receiving that, and thus they pay a quite high premium for it. But as a holistic view, there are vast differences between the impact that is delivered upon a successful result of those two endeavors, even if they are very similar in the field. 
And we're beginning to evaluate and create the infrastructure that allows us to make these assessments within our Web3 native industry. And because we have a blockchain infrastructure with which to capture this, we are able to do so in a much more transparent way than historical records have typically allowed. And that is going to empower us to level that playing field much more than it is in the previous iterations of economic participation. We are going to see that value differential between the bottom and top earners close the gap to something that is much more representative of the subjective value distribution based off of the value created and the necessity of that thing to the organism. Because once again, the symbiosis of the organism and the individual comes into play. If I am producing something that is not valuable to the organism, it doesn't matter if I'm working really hard and doing a lot of high-skilled stuff because it's not valuable. And when value is subjective like that, that also creates some very strange dynamics to account for. But we know that these are the things that we need to be focusing on right now to surpass these compensation problems and get us to a more permanent system. It is the thing that can stop our permanent game. And so as we figure out better ways to approach that, that make the game go on longer before we need to have a reboot, then we get better at actually playing this game. And we've seen the previous economic approaches over the last couple hundred years or so go through a rapid expansion maturity, and now we're kind of in a decay phase. And that's resulting in an anxiety that is encouraging the propagation of a new experiment, which, in my perspective, is beginning to happen under the infrastructure of blockchain, because it is the next piece of infrastructure that allows us to take a more equitable approach. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there as well. Um, you had mentioned something earlier, and that is value density. And I'm trying to remember the similar term that's used in the value of materials. But when you talk about human experience and human knowledge and accrual of experience and wisdom and specialized knowledge, whatever it is, you don't know. There's no way of knowing that that person has that level of skill and knowledge unless they can demonstrate it to you or can you click prior work. And you can't even really do that anymore, calling up a prior employer and say, hey, how did this person do? Were they the lead on the team or did they just say they were? Uh, I'm sorry, we can only tell you they worked here. Okay, great, thanks, that's useless. Um, that can help because if maybe you were treated badly at a prior employer and, and they're blacklisting you and you can't get a job anywhere else, talk about a double-edged sword. Um, and so how do you demonstrate that value accrual to a human being? And then the other piece of that is trust. And I wanted to, I didn't want to interrupt you earlier, but I've thought about this idea of trust as well. And, and trust is something that you have to earn. And I would argue that we trust a lot of things blindly. You know, we'll, we'll connect our wallet to an unknown site just because it looks cool. Connect wallet. Oh, well, we don't know what it's going to do. But smart contracts, unless that code has been thoroughly vetted, it's got time out there in, in the wild, people have been beating on it, why it's even more critical to be open source. Trust is something that's earned. And then once that trust is earned, it somehow needs to be represented and hardened 
in the thing that you're trusting, whether that is a person or a piece of code or, but it has to be earned. I feel like sometimes we blindly trust and strangely in crypto space where we talk about not trusting anything and it's a trustless environment. Well, quite frankly, we do place a lot of trust in things that maybe we shouldn't. There's definitely some friction there. And part of that is the human approach. We as individuals can assign our trust, whether it is justified or not. And when that trust is placed, it doesn't really care whether or not it's justified. It acts based off of the assumption that your trust is valid. And when you make those valuations without justification, you are subject to the punishment of the metaphorical free market when that trust is then violated and you lose out. But that's something that is detrimental to the organism in which we operate as well, because the suffering of the individual is passed to the community by nature of the lost potential there. That's one of the weird things that was somewhat argued through the effective altruism ideology, which I do not agree with by any means. But I could see why they were twisting the words to try and make it look that way. However, one of the things that I really wanted to go back to and talk about there is the concept of scarcity. Some people think that blockchain's innovation was the ability to create digital scarcity, to really show that there is a finite supply of something even in a digital realm. And as a tool, it absolutely is something that is valuable. But scarcity for its own sake is not beneficial. And this is something that a lot of people miss in the industry right now. And this manifests in things like NFT collections, where projects that aren't necessarily creating value are creating artificial scarcity by mechanisms of NFTs that are one of ones or rarity traits and things like this. And there is potentially value there, but scarcity of a raw resource is not a benefit. It is a flaw. And that is evidenced by real world items really well. For instance, gold. Right now, it's worth somewhere around $2,000 an ounce. And to obtain that material for a piece of jewelry or for a piece of electronics or whatever application it is, the scarcity drives that value higher. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the person who is getting that end product, particularly like the electronics users, that that increased cost is a benefit to them because a lower cost means there are more things that they can do with that item when delivered that will be profitable. So if something is requiring a little bit of gold and it drives up the cost to a point where the value capture from using that item is no longer equivalent to the cost of building the item itself that facilitates it, then even if there's value to be captured there, it will remain untapped. 
And if we were to do something like go out into the asteroid belts, find a pure gold asteroid and haul it back and say, all right, gold's four cents an ounce now because we have like 40 million tons of it, then all of a sudden all of these computing costs drop like stones. And that empowers much greater value capture because the raw resource is no longer scarce. But the collector, which is where you see the other side of that, is going to feel like that is a point of pain because all of a sudden my jewelry that I've been storing my wealth in is worth pennies on the dollar. And if I have been using it as a store of value asset, then I have found my value eroded. And so for that type of collector, scarcity is a feature, not a bug. And by recalibrating our understanding of economics so that we are storing our value in the things that are value added or value capture mechanisms rather than the raw materials, we will begin to rethink exactly what it means to create value and to store value. And we will begin to better assign those attributes to the things that deserve it. And in turn, our capital efficiency will increase by levels that have not been seen since the Industrial Revolution, if I dare venture so far. I think we have a huge opportunity here. Um, there are some pretty powerful forces that are invested in keeping the status quo as well. And that's true of anything. Anything that's either in, in, uh, you know, where people are comfortable, an industry that might be dying, or an organization that needs to shift focus and start making something else, or kill off a product line, or kill off something that they were doing, or reform. And I think that's something we also have to be willing to do too, is kill off projects or kill off things that maybe don't have a path forward or or maybe the premise was flawed, but not just to walk away from them, assess what was wrong. And so that we don't keep repeating the same errors or figure out a way to, to handle things differently. Like just the way we've emitted a lot of tokens early on without requiring any performance metrics, because, you know, how would you assign performance metrics when it was a new organization? We didn't even know what we were creating. And so <laughs> if we were kind of a cart before the horse situation, but you know, those things evolve, but being able to adjust along the way, you have to do that. Absolutely. Uh, and that's actually one of those core permaculture principles that I like to reference back the ability to creatively use and respond to change. It's, recognizing that when one of those moments shows up, there's something to be gleaned from it and passed forward to the next generation. And that that capture and then the response to those changes will be areas where a cyclical value add is possible when there's not necessarily one in a static sense. I guess at the end of the day, the approaches that we make in these infinite coordination games don't have to be perfect because this isn't a game to be won. It's a game to be propagated. So winning for us isn't necessarily the perfect result. It's a result that continues the experiment and is one little step 
better than the previous experiment's iteration. As long as we are doing that, we are building upon the shoulders of those who came before. And that is something that will continue to grow and scale to a much greater extent than we currently see. It will also allow us to contract where necessary to maintain the viability of the game. And we currently don't think about that too much because we're on the lower end of the scale right now. Once you get to a certain size, there is a capacity that can be reached. And at that point, maintaining the game is about restrictions rather than expansion. But as long as we're cognizant of those sorts of things, and we recognize what element of the infinite game we're in, and we apply those principles properly, we'll be able to find ourselves propagating the game with ever greater results. And I don't know about you guys, but... A greater productivity of results usually means a more abundant resource base from which to work. And once you cross a certain level of resources, we can take another step up that Maslow's hierarchy for the individual. And that sounds an awful lot like winning to me. Well, Joe, that sounds like a good note to end on. I know we've we've kind of talked a lot in generalities here and philosophical points and then it's funny you know it's bankless now we talk about branding and marketing and, and bankless sounds finance oriented but but a lot of the conversations around the DAO do become philosophically oriented because we are trying to solve for these bigger issues. So any last thoughts here? Do you want to reference your Twitter handle? Any links, anything specific, any action items? You can share my Twitter handle in the show notes if people want. I'm not going to try to spell it because, God, it's not friendly for that. But I do want to say that... If you have listened to this and you think, all this high and mighty philosophy is great, but what does that mean for me? I will say to you, that means participate in the infinite game. Help us propagate it. Become part of the community. And one of the best ways you can do that is one that we're working on right now with our internal Thrivecoin propagation. We're setting up a supporter system for the Making Bank podcast. And... Odds are, by the time this episode goes live, it will be ready to go. And so I would encourage you, the listener, to get involved. Fertilize this portion of the ecosystem if it's provided some value to you so that we can propagate the infinite game. And thus, we continue the cycle and can iterate and create a further experiment and increase the value that this show provides to you. Well, great. Thanks a lot, Joe. It's been great to have you on the show again. And you are going to be speaking at, I know you're going to East Denver and Dow Denver. Are you speaking it or are you moderating any panels or anything that we need to yeah. let folks know about? I'll be hosting a talk on the 25th in one of the Biddle Week rooms. And we'll be talking about subjects very close to the one that we've been speaking about today. So if you happen to get in and listen to it before East Denver hits the ground, I'd love to see you there and shake your hands. Cool. Wonderful. So that'll be on February 25th in Denver, Colorado. And I am going to East Denver as well. And I'm so looking forward to meeting people I've been working with these last almost two years now. So if all goes well, this should be a fun year of meeting all these wonderful people I've had a chance to chat with and work with in DAO space. It's It's been a ride and we might be in a bit of a 
a bear market right now, but there is so much opportunity here that the general public isn't really aware of. It's still early. I never imagined that I would be having these kinds of conversations. And it's an honor for me to know you and just having seen your leadership around the Dow and how you communicate with people and your inclusivity. And man, you are a gentleman philosopher. You know, your name comes from your prior handyman work, Above Average Joe, but man, you are way above average, sir. And thank you again. Thank you, sir. Look forward to seeing you there. Awesome. And that's a wrap. Thanks for listening. This has been Making Bank, a production of Bankless DAO. If you'd like to learn more about Bankless DAO, please visit bankless.community on the web for more information and how to get started. And of course, if you like what we're doing, please like, subscribe, and follow on your favorite podcast platform.